This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler, hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather round the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are indeed among friends. And tonight, this is kind of special. I'm coming to you live from Zoomerplex in the Liberty Village neighborhood of Toronto. It's been a while. It has been a while. I've been broadcasting from my little studio beneath the stairs in Old Thornhill, north of Toronto, but I, I've missed this place. I've missed Carlos, my technical producer, and, uh, well, quite frankly, my mail was piling up. I actually got a call from reception here at Zuma Radio a couple of weeks ago asking me to please swing by, please, 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 and get my mail. And um, it was like, maybe I'm dating myself, but you remember the old uh, Dagwood Bumstead cartoon? He would, he would open the closet and everything would come pouring out. That's what it was like in my mail bunk. Uh, I, I, I shoved about 24 different packages and parcels into the back of my car, and I will open those up. Actually, I'll get my little guys. They're not so little anymore. They'll be 14 next month, but they love to open my mail, the books that I get, as you can imagine, in this, uh, in this job. Oh, look, Dad, it's another book on Bigfoot or the pyramids. They just, it's like Christmas. So we'll have some fun this week. The Honorable Paul Hellier is standing by along with Victor Vigiani from Zealand News Network, and I'll bring them on board in just a moment. Uh, coming up in the second hour. Open lines. I always look forward to hearing from you and speaking with you. Open lines. You might want to jot these numbers down. They'll come in handy in about an hour. In the greater Toronto area, you'll call 416-360-0740 and toll-free from out of town, one 4740 Open lines. And those numbers, actually, if time permits, we'll try and carve out a few minutes for you to call in and speak with uh, Victor and the Honorable Mr. Hellier. Uh, just a quick reminder, if you haven't already done so, please register at strangeplanet.ca. That's my website, strangeplanet.ca. And sign up for my free monthly newsletter, Inner Sanctum. I'm already at work on the October issue. Again, go to strangeplanet.ca, and up near the top, you'll see a button. Uh, uh, just click on that and uh, enter your email address, and you're done. And then you'll start receiving Inner Sanctum delivered right to your email inbox every month, absolutely free. It is 
hard to believe, to say the least. Uh, this month, earlier this month, in fact, marked the 15th anniversary of a public announcement that really took the UFO disclosure movement by storm. Canada's former defense minister, former deputy prime minister, publicly announced before a crowd at the University of Toronto back in 2005 that he believed in the existence of UFOs. In fact, he said UFOs are as real as the airplanes flying over your head. The Honorable Paul Hellier, Canada's youngest member of parliament when he was first elected in 1949 and the youngest cabinet minister appointed to Louis St. Laurent's government eight years later. Although Mr. Hellier is best known for the unification of the Canadian Armed Forces and for his 1968 chairmanship of the Task Force on Housing and Urban Development, he's maintained a lifelong interest in macroeconomics. This led him to form Action Canada, a populist movement dedicated to the concepts of full employment and low inflation, with an emphasis on quality of life issues. Through the years, as a journalist and political commentator, he has continued to fight for economic reforms and has written several books on the subject. In recent years, he's become interested, of course, in the extraterrestrial presence and their superior technology that we've been emulating. As I mentioned, in September 20, 2005, he became the first person of cabinet rank in the G8 group of countries. The first person of cabinet rank in the G8 group of countries to state unequivocally UFOs are as real as the airplanes flying overhead. He's authored over a dozen books, including Light at the End of the Tunnel, A Survival Plan for the Human Species, The Money Mafia, A World in Crisis, Hope Restored, an autobiography of Paul Hellyer, My Life and Views on Canada, the U.S., the world, and the universe. And his brand new one, not quite yet available, although I think you may be able to pre-order on Amazon. We'll find out in a moment. And it's called Liberated, the Economics of Hope. Paul, how are you? I'm well, thank you, Richard. Good to hear your voice. Likewise, and I appreciate you staying up late. It's, um, yes, it's past my bedtime, but for, for you, it's a pleasure. Oh, it's past my bedtime, too, but somehow we make it work. <laughs> I also want to welcome a good friend of the program, the executive director of Zeland News Network and Zeland Communications, a long-time UFO disclosure advocate, Victor Vigiani. Victor, welcome aboard. Great to be with you, Richard. Once again, it's an absolute pleasure to uh, be involved in a very important conversation this evening. And you were involved in... in uh, Paul's public announcement back in 2005. Let me just get your take on it, Victor. Just explain how, uh, what your involvement in that, uh, that historic date was. Well, f first of all, um, I, I have to go back to the radio program, uh, Strange Days Indeed, on, on uh, another Toronto radio station. Uh, the host there was Errol Bruce Knapp, and we had finished a program. I, I forget exactly. I think it was in April sometime. Uh, and at the time, uh, Mike Bird and I were planning the uh, uh, symposium on UFO disclosure and planetary directions. And so er Errol and I had just finished a, uh, uh, a program, and I was packing up my things and waiting to go out the door. And one of the ops called me and said, Victor, there's a call for you in line one. I, I didn't want to take the call. It, it, it just, I was tired, and it was like 1 o'clock in the evening. You know what that's like. And, but I took it anyways. And it was a friend of Paul's. I, I won't mention his name, but it was a close friend of Paul's. And he said uh, to me, uh, uh, Mr. Vigianity, yes, you have to talk to Paul Hellyer. And I said, 
why at the time i mean, i remember paul as a you know a minister of uh, defense and, and all of that but i didn't know why at the time he just said you have to talk to paul so i said i'll take that under advisement thank you very much and uh, i waited a couple of weeks and i i did call paul a little bit later on uh, with the understanding from another person, as Paul will get into, uh, from Pierre Junot, a friend of Paul's, uh, who um, suggested that Paul read a very important book. And I, I'm sure Paul will outline that, too. So I called Paul and I said, listen, we're planning this uh, uh, symposium on UFOs. Uh, would you like to be part of it? Because you've read the book and uh, you know, the day after disclosure. Um, in any case, uh, Paul said, oh, no, no, I, I couldn't do that. No, um, he, he, he refused my first invitation. I said, well, let me, you know, call you back after you finish reading the book and we can talk again. So a couple of weeks went by, maybe a bit longer, and I called Paul back. And I guess whatever, you know, the fates may be and the, and the, uh, and the gods opened up the heavens and, and Paul said, yes, I will be part of the, the UFO uh, symposium uh, in September, uh, September 25th in, in 2005. So that's a very quick uh, summary of how it happened. And then from that point on, uh, we just uh, extended the invitations to other people uh, to speak at the at the conference, and which we'll probably get into a bit later on. So that's a very short thumbnail sketch of, of how it all happened to begin with. Right. And and Paul, was it how how difficult a decision was that? I mean, were there friends and confidence and maybe even confidants and maybe even family members who said, Paul, listen, do you really want to do this? Think about think about your legacy. About the, and they talked about that later when I'd done it. <clears throat> but it was really a matter of conscience, uh, Richard, because after reading uh, The Day After Roswell and realizing that it was the truth, and then, uh, as Victor has not mentioned, uh, <clears throat> con- um, confirming this with a retired United States Air Force general, who, when I called him uh, after some prompting from my... Uh, my nephew, uh, and uh, had told him what I was, well, he, he had been told what I was reading. And uh, when I picked up the phone uh, and called him, he said, every word is true and more. And so um, with that um, confirmation and him going into the more for about 20 minutes, <clears throat> and telling me that there had been face-to-face meetings between the United States officials and um, sentient beings from other star systems. Uh, I was uh, confirmed in my conviction, which I already had then, that I should go public because I was afraid that at some stage the United States might, uh, the Air Force might get us into a galactic war, uh, knowing their sort of propensity to shoot first and ask questions after. So I thought uh, the American people don't know what's going on, and they should because this is a very important uh, issue, and uh, I have a responsibility to speak the truth uh, so that uh, they'll, some people at least will know what is actually happening and uh, should take uh, whatever action they feel is uh, required uh, you know, as a result. So that's sort of how it uh, it got going, and but um, the other interesting part of it was I was getting married a week to the day after the uh, the speech at the University of Toronto. So I phoned my uh, my fiance, who was the 
widow of my best friend ever, who I'd known for 30 or 40 years, and told her about it, and she was not wildly enthusiastic, if I may be a little bit... Uh, <clears throat> um, so, uh, but she said, if you feel it's important in the public interest, uh, go ahead and do it. And I said, well, it'll just be a one thing, a one-time thing, you know. I'll get it <laughs> Famous last words. <laughs> Right. So I didn't yes. mean to tell her an untruth because I have a long, long reputation of telling the truth, and I pride myself on doing that. <clears throat> but uh, it turned out that once I went public, then the, the papers started coming in from all over the world, some classified and some not, and dozens of books, and then there were a lot of people who wanted to, to brief me, including... Uh, Dr. Um, Stephen Greer? Stephen Greer, yeah. And, and a whole list of others that uh, were interested in meeting and uh, talking to me. And uh, my learning curve started going up and up and up, and it's been going up ever since. It's, and, it, it, it's uh, interesting. It still is. Right. It, it's interesting because... If I'm remembering correctly, an earlier conversation that, that we had, this started off as kind of just some summer reading. You were taking some books up to the cottage. Someone said, "Here, read this one too." And oh, well, it, it was it was Pierre Junot who right. sent me the book. Right. And I said, "Well, I, I will." And this was after he had been trying for two years to get me interested. And uh, and when he sent me this, I thought I have uh, it would make good summer reading. Right. Right. I couldn't find it when I wanted to take it up in 2004, um, so I had to read The Life of Pi, which uh, I found quite entertaining, and I didn't know until near the end uh, that it was fiction. And uh, But this one was different, and in 19, uh, 2005, I was looking for another book, couldn't find it, and there, staring me in the face, was a day after Roswell, and so I took that, and uh, that was uh, the beginning of this uh, long journey. Right. I mean, it really changed the trajectory uh, of your life. Uh, When you're reading Corso's book, The Day After Roswell, does it seem, does it hit you immediately as credible, or are you reserving judgment until you can can call some of your your contacts in the U.S. for verification? No, it it, uh, didn't take long for me to realize that it was uh, credible. Because I recognized the names of the generals, most of them, and uh, and many of the air bases, and I was familiar with those from my time in the uh, Department of National Defense. So I, I, it would, it had the, it had the uh, tenor of a, of a true story from the time I really got into it. And Victor, I'm going to get you in here in a minute to, you know, to, to ask some questions, but I want to ask you, Victor, a question, and that is, yeah. when you realized you had the, the highest or the first person of cabinet rank in the G8 group of countries willing, w- willing to come forward and speak at the University of Toronto and make this announcement that UFOs are real, what's going through your mind? That's a great question. Um, well, as soon as when I first called Paul and he he sort of, um, you know, he said he said no uh, to begin with. And uh, I wasn't disappointed because I kind of anticipated that kind of reaction. 
because I didn't know exactly how heavily he was into the whole whole situation. Uh, however, uh, once I called him the second time and he said yes, uh, and it wasn't sort of a you know a, a hovering yes, it was a definite, absolute, I need to do this kind of yes. And from that point on, I realized that, um, as I said at Convocation Hall, this will be a clock stopper in Canadian history, which it turned out to be. So g- going through my mind uh, and realizing that we had a former Deputy Prime Minister and former Minister of Defence, I knew after being involved in the UFO issue since 1975 that having someone like Paul come forward and reaffirm uh, what I knew and what all of my colleagues knew and what uh, the speakers at the Convocation Hall knew, to have Paul come forward and confirm this from his position was in fact a, a clock stopper. And I knew it at the time and I I knew it all the way along and I know it right now today that what Paul has done is moved the, uh, the needle forward with respect to disclosure in a way that I don't think anybody else really could, especially within the Canadian context. And and Paul, how did you, when you decided you're, I'm going to call somebody and see if this stuff checks out that's in Corso's book? How do you make the decision who to call? I mean, did you have a, a short list? Did you have um, former colleagues in your time as Minister of Defense? Oh no, it was it was just uh, after reading. Well, it, to go back just a little bit, Pierre Juno had persuaded me, persuaded me to watch the uh, Peter Jennings ABC special. And I did that before I read the book. And all, I think it was two hours special. And uh, all of these former Air Force uh, pilots and, uh, and uh, air traffic controllers and uh, commercial pilots and policemen saying that they had seen UFOs um, had an effect on me so that this was a part of the conditioning. And I said to myself, well, why would they lie? Nobody would pay them to lie and say that they had seen UFOs if they hadn't. So that was before I read uh, Corso's book. And after reading Corso's book, I was already convinced, without any doubt whatsoever. But um, I was was, uh, very anxious to check it out with this um, retired Air Force general that uh, was a friend of my uh, of my nephew and who I had met and knew uh, just for verification. And of course, uh, when I phoned him, and even before I could say hello and how are you, he said every word is true and more. Well, that's a good start. Right, right. And I know, to my knowledge, uh, you've never identified this person aside from a retired Air Force general, correct? And and was that uh, was that conversation contingent on you never revealing his name or or um, it wasn't contingent on it, but I know uh, that he would be in. I know from what happened later that he would have been in terrible trouble had I done that. When you say what happened later, are you able to share that? No, well, there was a uh, one of the uh, officers that trailed me around for a year or two and uh, wanted me to say who it was because he was going to beat him up and uh, so on. A, a U.S. military official f- trailed yeah. you for a, a year wanting his name so that he could go and, and Absolutely. beat him up? And the CIA phoned me too and uh, Paula Harris managed to uh, 
somehow divert that one. Um, Victor, we've we've got about two and a half minutes here. Do you want to uh, get to a question and and then we'll continue after the break? Yeah. Sure. Yeah, it's that's that is a, a very severe revelation with respect to um, how I guess the the complex of, of of secrecy reacted to someone of Paul's stature coming forward and doing what he was doing, and that kind of reaction uh, by the United States government or whoever was making those kinds of threat threats um, is an indication that what Paul did was in fact momentous, that it was in fact uh, contacting someone who knew exactly what was going on within the the UFO secrecy uh, labyrinth, and Paul having sort of wrenched that free from this particular general, uh, that was a threat to the system, that was a threat to the secrecy, to the the truth embargo. And that's one of the things that I I think that Paul, I think, has done uh, almost inadvertently in one way. And so you can tell by the reaction of this military complex that it wants this uh, secret uh, to to be maintained. Uh, You can tell that what Paul did was, in fact, very, very important, or they wouldn't have reacted that way. Would you you sense that, Paul? Uh, They didn't like it, no. Did they ever threaten you directly, Paul? Um, Not directly, no. No. Although they... They tried to they tried to feed me disinformation several times, so that I would repeat something that they had given me, uh, that they knew they could then uh, show was only part of part truth or whatever, in an effort to discredit me. They tried to do that several times, but I, being an old farm boy and knowing the difference between wheat and chaff. <laughs> I managed to avoid being sucked into any of those uh, situations. All right, uh, Paul and uh, Victor, stay put. We'll take a quick time out, come back, and uh, continue to delve into uh, history, really. Fifteen years ago this month, the Honorable Paul Hellyer became the first person of cabinet rank in the G8 group of countries to state unequivocally UFOs are real as real as the airplanes flying overhead. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. And uh, just a reminder, open lines at the top of the hour. Right now, the Honorable Paul Hellyer stays with us along with Victor Vigiani and... uh, Paul's latest book, Liberated, The Economics of Hope. Now, I know it's not officially out yet, Paul, but is that available as a pre- oh, I, pre-order? I don't know if you've checked in the last two or three days, Oh, um, but I think it probably is available because I got mine in the uh, uh, by uh, Express uh, two days ago. Ah, so it is available now at uh, Amazon and wherever good books are sold, I'm guessing? Right, it should be. Well, oh. it, you know, it takes them a few days to uh, get the order Right, but uh, Amazon should have it now or within a day or two. All right, liberated the economics of hope, and um, we'll we'll get around to discussing some of the uh, the finer points in that that book. Right now, uh, I wanted to to go back to this conversation with this Air Force general. 
Um, and, and forgive me if, you know, this is going over well-trodden territory, but uh, it is, it's, it's absolutely mind-blowing. And, and some of his revelations to you about various, uh, um, what do we call them, races of, of ETs that were interacting. Uh, can you walk us through some of those points that he made with you on no, the phone? No, he, he didn't get into that. I think, um, apart from uh, the, the fact that uh, U.S. officials... That, that first of all, the book was, in his opinion, 100% true. I don't think that was quite, probably 95%. But um, but um, he, he um, told me something that um, I didn't know, which I think a lot of people don't know, and that is that um, when you get into the argument of nothing travels faster than the speed of light, um, it isn't true, and that uh, gravity travels faster than the speed of light, and that most of the spaceships are uh, anti-gravity, and there are other, you know, there, I'm, we don't get into wormholes and that sort of thing tonight, but uh, there are other means of speeding up travel through space that we just didn't know about and weren't in the books, of course, that we were taught uh, of during school. So uh, people like my, even one of my sons, he says, well, nothing can travel faster than the speed of light. That isn't correct. We're just, that's what I call the old reality. And what I've been studying and researching and writing about uh, with these last four books, interestingly enough, each one of the last four books was supposed to be the last, and I think that this uh, liberate, liberated uh, the the economics of uh, of hope is in fact the last. I don't think I could get away with another one because uh, my wife is getting sick and tired of me being uh, working all the time. No, workaholic. But um, that the, uh, the 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 evolution of these things. The, the amount of information out there is so great that it's almost impossible to get your head around it. And in the first of the, of the four books that you mentioned, uh, Richard, uh, right at the end of the tunnel, the survival plan for the human species, uh, I had a little bit in about it, uh, about the species. I mentioned several of the species and, uh, and so on. And, uh, I guess, you know, I think there was one chapter on this, on this subject. But when I wrote it, I thought it was my last book. Well, then in the next four years, I learned so much about what was really going on that I wrote the, uh, <clears throat> the Money Mafia, A World in Crisis. And that's where I uh, revealed that uh, the U.S. military had been taken over by the, uh, by the Nazis in Operation Paperclip and afterward, and uh, that uh, they were doing all sorts of things that uh, they were keeping secret for uh, these last 70 years, and uh, that uh, the Americans had a problem that they had to uh, concern themselves with, and they should know about it. And at the end of the book, I proposed that they have to have a second uh, oath of uh, loyalty and uh, starting with the president go right down through the military industrial 
and intelligence because intelligence is in it to their ears, an intelligence complex. And um, so I, I felt I had to write another book and, and put in what I uh, had learned in those four years. And then four years later, I had to do the same thing with Hope Restored and uh, and talk about the uh, the creation of the cosmos and uh, and some other things and how they t- tied together with the uh, problems that we face today. Um, and this latest one is not, it has one or two things that are new, but it's really going back to the fact that for about 300 years, we the people have been robbed blind by a few families who have dominated the banking and, uh, and financial system for the world, or well, at least the Western world, and who are so rich that, you know, if you start talking about it, you just uh, kind of find it almost difficult to realize. But uh, I think it was six or years or so ago, 88 families had as much wealth as all of the 99%, the other rest of the people in the world, and it dropped to uh, 80 families. And then it, the last uh, poll I saw was that 62 families own as much wealth as all of the other people of the world. And uh, this is the system that we've been living with. And when this coronavirus came along, and I knew that that was going to crash the system, the economic system, and uh, that huge sums of money would be necessary to uh, to keep from having a terrible recession or another Great Depression, then I decided I had to uh, write another book, which is the one that's just come out, to say enough is enough already, and we've got to change the system and take away the power, the monopoly that these few families have had to create money out of thin air and then lend it to us and expect to get it back with interest. That's what's been going on for, well, about 300 years, and it's been getting worse until they got a total monopoly, and it's got to stop, and the U.S. should should seize the Fed, um, I would say without any compensation, because all of the the uh, capital of the Fed represents uh, U.S. government debt, and this is all debt that was unnecessary. A few congressmen asleep just before Christmas uh, over 100 years ago gave away the, the, the most valuable right that any country has, and that is the right to create their own money, the most powerful economic tool in the whole world. And they gave it away, and they gave it to the richest, most ruthless, and most cunning, and most, uh, I would say, uh, what's a good word, amoral people in the world. The top bankers of the world. Unscrupulous might be the the best way. (laughs) Met secretly in Jekyll Island and and came up with this uh, federal 
reserve system, which is neither federal nor reserve. Well, up here in Canada, just a quick aside, and we are approaching a, a break, and Victor, I promise I'll get you uh, in for a question when we come back. But up here in Canada, it happened a little differently because we had the Bank of Canada, which was basically nationalized by Prime Minister Mackenzie King, and, and all levels of government could borrow from the Bank of Canada at very low or zero interest. That's how we built the St. Lawrence Seaway, the Trans-Canada Highway. That's how we paid for our war effort. And then... I believe it was in the mid, maybe about, about 1974 under Prime Minister Trudeau, they basically sidestepped the Bank of Canada Act and started going to international lenders. It, yes, it was actually the Bank of Canada that made the decision. Trudeau gets blamed for it, but he didn't, he didn't even know what was going on. And I'm not sure that the governor did either, but they made the decision and they, uh, went into a system of, in effect, a worldwide system under the Bank for International Settlements, and I have a, a whole chapter on that. Most people have never heard it. That's kind of the, the central bank of central banks. The most banks. powerful institutions in the world. Right. And 99% of my, of my friends have never heard of it. So what we did in 1974 was decide to take our orders from the Bank for International Settlements, and one of the th- things that they decided was that we... The Bank of Canada would no longer create uh, cheap money for the government because we had, as you say, from 1939 to 1974, the, the Bank of Canada created a whole lot of money at near zero cost. And I say near zero because, well, I won't go into the mechanics right. because we haven't got time to talk about that tonight, but it was almost, almost zero cost money. And with that, we put together the huge war effort that we had for a small country. And then uh, after the war, the infrastructure, our share of the St. Lawrence Seaway, which was the major share, Trans-Canada Highway, the Dew Line, which was, and we had the, the major cost of that too, which was the, the, the line of, uh, of radars that went right around the periphery of the continent. And we paid for those and and a lot of uh, provincial infrastructure as well, and without creating any, any debt. And then all of a sudden, they make this change, and between fiscal year 74 and 75 and 2013-14, we paid a $1.37 trillion in, de- in interest, none of which was necessary. And you just think what you could do with $1.37 trillion. Right. Well, it's, tre- it's treasonous. Situation which we're in today. It's treasonous what happened. We'll, we'll take a time out. We'll come back and uh, delve into that some further. Victor Vigiani has some questions as well. And uh, you are listening to The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Back with more in a moment. Don't go away. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. From Zoomer Radio. Just a reminder, open lines, top of the hour, you, me, and the telephone. And uh, what what can I say? Just bring it. Uh, that's coming up as, uh, in about 20 minutes. Uh, Victor Vigiani, uh, over to you, my friend. Yeah, it's an intriguing conversation, Richard. You've raised some in, in, uh, very explicit points with Paul. Paul, I just wanted to sort of throw something by you that um, if the, if these families, as you describe, who control 
the amount of wealth that they in fact control. Um, when when I'm trying to link these two issues here together, um, when any kind of disclosure does happen with respect to the extraterrestrial presence, what effect do you think that that kind of disclosure will have on the monetary system that we have uh, in in the context of who these ET beings might be, whether or not they even have a monetary system themselves, and how locked in we are to this archaic thing called called money? How, how do you think that's going to uh, affect um, how the economic system of the world or the global uh, community might happen. I know that's a speculation on your part, but I'd love to hear your, your take on that. Well, my, my quick answer is, um, Victor, that it, it won't have any effect. <clears throat> Our problem is, is confined to Earth. We will learn things about other planets which have different systems, and maybe, you know, ultimately... Uh, some of those might uh, apply here, but in the in the time period that uh, that we're concerned about and our children, um, we have to change the the system so that instead of uh, some people having control of hundreds of trillions of dollars, literally, uh, and while others are starving, that. The money, the money is redirected, and uh, and all sovereign countries start creating a certain amount of the money that they require, and uh, enough to balance their budgets and to uh, and to start uh, making a change in the distribution of wealth, so that there are fewer people in the world who are really poor, and there are no people who are homeless or uh, or hungry, and this is quite possible within the system if we were to change it the way that uh, some of us have recommended to the government and which I recommend in my book. And I, I have a formula there that I worked out uh, with a colleague uh, when I was uh, a member of the Committee on Monetary and Economic Reform, and uh, we presented it to the Conservative government uh, six years ago, and they... Uh, didn't even uh, acknowledge it, and we presented it to the uh, present government, and they uh, haven't even acknowledged it. And consequently, uh, that has cost the Canadian people, uh, uh, oh, I, uh, I guess about uh, $700 billion over, over six years. And... Uh, our American friends are even worse off, you know. They have, they have paid to the uh, richest people in the in the in the world through the federal system, the Federal Reserve System, more trillion dollars than you can count. It's just been an absolute wash of money, going from ordinary working people uh, through the system, as a result of having to borrow the necessary money to. Uh, Build the infrastructure, or to uh, to make the economy expand, and so on. Could you is, could you it, share your your formula with right? us? Could you share your formula with us? Well, it's, it it is a, to go back to the to system where the banks have to have um, uh, cash reserves, ultimately of thirty four percent of all of their deposits instead of zero, which is now the system now. 
and this would be accomplished over seven years at the rate of 5% a year, and that the all of the, gov- the governments of the world would be able to uh, create an amount of money equal to 5% of the total bank deposits in their country every year for seven years until they reach this 34%. And it's a huge amount of money. And uh, the first in the first year, for example, if this system was extended across the Western world and so on, um, I think it's something like uh, $6 trillion would be infused into the world uh, economic system, which would be enough to get it up and running from the pandemic and keep it running. And then at the end of the seven years, 34% of all the new money created after that would be um, created uh, by the government for the use of governments. And, and uh, we they would split it between themselves, 50% for the federal governments, 25% divided between the uh, the provinces and the municipalities. And uh, everybody would have their own money, run their own show. They wouldn't have all of this red tape that they have at the present time, and so on. And But even more important is, is the question of power. And this, there are several uh, systems being put forward at the present time, modern monetary theory being one of them, which all have merit. <laughs> but the one we've put forward... And the one I put forward in the, in the book is the only one that is specifically addressing the question of the power of these bankers to run the world, which in effect they have now. They have more power than the President of the United States, believe it or not. And that is a real problem that we may or may not have time to get into. Okay, we will, we'll, uh, we'll take a time out and we can touch on that when we come back. Paul Hellyer stays with us. Liberated, the economics of hope. It's out now, folks. Get yourself a copy. Victor Vigiani's Elan News Network stays with us. Back with more in a moment. Don't be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free. 1-866-740-4740. So let's see if I understand this formula. It essentially, it comes down to this. Um, the, the government would, would essentially circumvent the central bank or the Federal Reserve in the case of the United States or the international lenders by, by printing their own money. So, for example, Abraham Lincoln in the 1860s, he had the greenback. It was like a $5 it was paper currency. It wasn't backed by gold or silver. It was just backed by, I guess, the credibility of, of the U.S. government. Uh, and, and, and Kennedy tried something similar with silver certificates. So is it, is it as simple as basically saying, let's, let's, uh, let's go by the Bank of Canada Act again? It's, it's, it's almost as simple. I, I don't think governments can can go around their central banks anymore. They have to own them and run them. When I say run them, set their set their policies. And uh, what uh, our proposal does is instead of giving the central bank a bond 
which has to be repaid, even at low interest, that you give them a, uh, a certificate, a stock certificate, non-refundable, non-transferable, non-redeemable, in the country. Because I think it was uh, Edison who said that any country whose credit is good enough to issue a bond can issue a bill. And basically, all you're doing is using the system that the the bankers themselves have set up, and rather than than tear up the whole system, you use you use it, but you transform it from one where the capital of the bank can be invested, uh, can be lent to twenty different people, organizations, or governments at once and get interest back from every one of them. Down to two, this is a leverage, down to twice what the cap, their capital, which it was when the Bank of uh, England was formed, uh, uh, chartered perhaps just over a little, three, three, a little over 300 years ago. So they've gone from a ratio of two to one over the years when I was, and in Canada, when I was uh, young, the uh, cash reserve was 8%, so you could lend them the same money 12 and a half times, which is too much in my opinion. And uh, we have to get that down to the point where it is fair, it is just. There's, the banks still have enough leverage to, uh, to attend to the needs of small business and uh, and do their legitimate things, but where they in fact uh, don't uh, make the kind of, of return that uh, only people who print money can do, and they have to uh, act a little more like a, a uh, well, a public service, really, not uh, right. just, just right. to get a little reason into the system which would allow the banks to do their job or the job that they were originally intended to do and the governments to do their job, which is to start making it a little easier for the people at the bottom to get food uh, on their table and pay their rent and uh, educate their kids and the things that have to be done. All right, Victor, I want you to jump in while time allows. Yeah, I, it's, I mean, Paul has got a, a really great handle on all of this. Um, and I know you've dealt with issues, you know, concerning, you know, student debt and all of that. You know, these kids coming out of the university with a $50,000 debt. Uh, what would you sense, Paul, would be the overall effect of other economists or other individuals or other bankers or whomever to buy into your scenario or the scenario that you're you're proposing how many how many of these individuals within the economic system really kind of understand what you're saying and are saying to you paul yeah this is workable we might be able to do it but how can we do it are there well, people that, that you talk to because they don't even schools like the london school of economics don't teach basic money and banking they don't even know where money comes from. No, and that's true of so, the, all of the major economic schools. I think there's only one in the United States uh, where they teach what I would call would be uh, reasonable in this. I think it's the University of Kansas in Kansas City, where their economics department uh, understands the 
necessity of doing something like this. And uh, so most of them wouldn't understand unless they read my book carefully and uh, get a better understanding of the subject that they didn't get at university. And the people in the banks who are running them will fight against it fiercely because what they have going for them now is like, uh, you know, a, a gold mine with someone else doing the work, getting the gold out of the, out of the hills and just handing it to them. Mm-hmm. And they're going to have to start working for the, for a living a little bit to a certain extent. Let me ask you, and this is um, highly speculative, obviously, uh, but I'm, I'm thinking you might have a, an opinion here. And that is, to what extent, not that, the, not that COVID is not real, it, the, the virus is real, obviously people have died, people have gotten sick, but that it has been used for cover in order for the powers that be to basically push the reset button. In other words, they didn't want, they didn't want the economy to collapse uh, because of debt and, and, and take the blame for it and the politicians so they could blame conveniently hide behind COVID-19 and say, well, we all have to hide in our basement and the economy is going to contract. Um, but it's basically been used to reset. What do you think of that? Well, that's, that's an interesting uh, subject, which I more or less uh, get to at the end of the book, because they're planning really to change the system into a crypto cryptocurrencies, um, so that in effect, the people who are presently running the world would still be able to run the world, because they would have a system where they had your money in their control. They would know what you had on. Uh, deposit, and if they didn't like you, they could just, uh, I'm looking for a good word here, they could cause you more trouble. Cancel? <laughs> Cancel you? <laughs> lose your lose your account. Right, right. And, uh, and that's the kind of thing that's underway at this very pleasant present time. Um, and whether... Whether there was some involvement in this or not, I don't know. I, I raised the question because uh, at the beginning of the year, I, there was a, a uh, rumor on the street, as it were, <clears throat> that they would crash the system again this year. And uh, it has crashed. And whether they had any part in that or not, I don't know. But I do know it was very convenient for what they are doing and wanted to do. And sometimes you say, well, uh, follow the money if you want to find out uh, the source of the problem. So I, I, I mentioned those uh, in the book uh, that uh, I think maybe the truth will come out someday, maybe it never will. But uh, the bankers are smiling all the way to their... <laughs> they're smiling all the way home while Ordinary people are wondering where their next month's rent's going to come from and whether they will ever be able to reestablish their little business that, that uh, has been ruined in the last eight months. Uh, and very quickly, last word, Paul, uh, are, you, are you hopeful that uh, UFO disclosure is, is imminent? Well, there's more of it coming uh, uh, now than ever before, Victor, the the cabal and the U.S. forces have put out a couple of feelers 
The New York Times had a little piece in recently, and uh, the, the U.S. Navy has put out a couple of uh, things saying that their, their pilots were chasing uh, UFOs. They knew they were real, and uh, but they didn't know what they wanted. Well, that's a lie because they know exactly what's going on. The U.S. Navy, I think, fished the first uh, UFO out of the South Pacific in 1945, and they've been involved deeply in the business ever since. And they and the Air Force have been running parallel operations, and they've, and they've been part of the cover-up. And uh, so now the problem they have is trying to explain how they've got a, a space force when they haven't yet officially acknowledged the existence of UFOs. And they have one of the, you know, they have a, a huge fleet of, of spaceships. And how do you explain it to your taxpayers? Well, you start leaking little stories that would have been news if they'd been put out 70 years ago, or even 60 or 50 years ago. But to leave it uh, for 70 years until they've got the Space Force built, which in also, as you know, in my book, I say I think it could be a threat to the American people because of the, who controls it. Right, and, and sadly, we are out of time, but we'll have to do this again, um, Paul. I, I really appreciate you staying up again. Liberated the economics of hope. Thank you, and uh, Victor Vigiani, Zeland News Network. Thank you to you, gentlemen. Appreciate it. It's a It's a pleasure. Good night. Thanks, Victor. All right. Open lines when we come back. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home. Long haul truck, RV, camper, taxi. Your parents' well-appointed rec room with the simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker. Your loft. That greasy spoon just off the interstate and your cabin in the woods. And a big howdy, how, how are you, to everyone listening in on our flagship station, AM 740, 96.7 FM, Zoomer Radio here in Toronto. And hey there to each of you tuning, tuning us in on one of our affiliate stations scattered across North America. Hello to those streaming us on the Zoomer Radio app or on zoomerradio.ca and on my YouTube channel, Strange Planet. And we are live streaming on the YouTube channel. And of course, a special hello to each of you gathered in the YouTube live chat tonight, this morning. However, and wherever you're listening, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes, and I thank you for your fine company. Uh, open hours, or open lines this hour, open lines, 416 360 0740, 416-360-0740, and toll-free from just about anywhere, 1-866-740-4740. And uh, if you had a chance to listen to the last hour with Paul Hellyer and Victor Vigiani, and you want to comment on that, you're certainly welcome to do so, um, and just about anything else. Uh, you know, keeping in mind, this is... A, a conspiracy show. We talk uh, the paranormal. We talk UFOs. Uh, we can talk a little political subterfuge, if you'd like. 
uh, but we don't swap veal recipes. That's basically what I'm saying. Uh, now, Carlos in the other room, do we still have uh, Victor Vigiani? Yes, Victor is uh, is going to hang in, and um, we're going to uh, we're going to sort of conduct open lines together. It's always great to have Victor aboard. Victor, how are you? Just fine, thanks. That was a, a very interesting first hour. Yeah, um, I know it's a. People may not realize that that Paul Hellyer is ninety seven years old, ninety seven, and um, so you know for him to be up late. That's first of all, you know, we're very grateful. It's remarkable for him to have that kind mm-hmm. of energy still. And and uh, right. uh, but I would love to get him back on to delve further into the uh, the economics, uh, the macroeconomics. Um, but the the UFO uh, ET question. Still, to me, is um, I mean, I, I I know he loves to talk macroeconomics and so forth, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah. but to me, I mean, that's the Lollapalooza. Um, we we didn't have a lot of time to get into further into uh, his his views on the the types of ETs that are interacting with with uh, humankind, and I know you've talked to him a lot, a lot longer and known him a lot longer than I have. Can you mm-hmm. share a little bit about his views on? on the types of ETs that are interacting and to what extent they are interacting? Well, he, he is, has come on board with, with um, people like Clifford Stone. Um, I know we've, we've uh, conducted interviews with, Richard, uh, with, uh, with Clifford before, uh, and Clifford Stone has been one of the, um, I guess, foremost proponents of visiting crash sites where extraterrestrial vehicles have crashed you know we're talking you know hard you know um, vehicles and then on top of that actual beings and um and i know that um paul has definitely some very strong views not only about the kinds of vehicles that have crashed a and b the entities that are in these craft uh, his assertion that there are 57 uh, different varieties of extraterrestrials out there is not all that far-fetched because a number of other people who've, um, you know, articulated that uh, and have espoused the the um, uh, the position that the, the United States government have met with some of them, uh, it's very difficult to dismiss that kind of evidence. I mean, it's, it's, it's easy to say, well, yeah, it's just so, you know, total fabrication, and it's easy to say that because it's so far-fetched. But what if it is, in fact, true that there are, in fact, 57 different species? And Paul's made this very clear. I know that he's had interactions with um, a number of different people. Um, Dr. Edgar Mitchell, for one, uh, the sixth man to walk on, on, on the moon, who has affirmed the fact that uh, these craft have, in fact, crashed. And there are beings and bodies being consumed by the the United States recovery teams. Uh, This kind of stuff is not easy to dismiss. So what do you do with that kind of information? Do you just totally dismiss it? Or do you delve more deeply into the people who espouse these particular points of view? And that's the whole conundrum of UFO disclosure. Uh, You can can discount it in a holus bolus. Or you can de- de- uh, you know, dig more deeply into it and find out, in fact, whether Clifford Stone, for example, has in fact seen extraterrestrial beings at these craft sites. 
and it, that to me is 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 a is a tipping point that you just can't dismiss. All right, let's go to the phones. And John is in Toronto. John, good morning. Welcome. Hello. Thank you for taking my call. Great my show as always, sir. My pleasure. What's uh, on your my mind? My question is. Um, uh, my main concern, uh, I believe that there are UFOs and that there are extraterrestrials in the world. Um, my, the one thing that I think about the most is how are we going to shift the paradigm that we have now as a human race? Um, I forget who it was that um, a, f- a very famous man was asked by a reporter, and he said, do you believe in the existence? Uh, are, there, are there extraterrestrials? Is there intelligence in outer space? And the old man said, young man, there are only two possibilities. One, we are completely alone in the universe. Two, we are not. I find both possibilities to, to fill me with equal measures of terror and excitement. Hmm. And my question is, how are we going to prepare people for, to, for the paradigm that when the extraterrestrials do show up, because eventually they are going to show up. I truly believe that. Um, how, um, uh, uh, Mr. Vigiani, what do you believe is the best way that we can help prepare people um, so that people don't freak out? Like when Orson Welles read uh, War of the Worlds, um, it, it was very disturbing for people. What is the best way, other than these ridiculous UFO um, movies that um, always show, I mean, they're very violent and... Um, uh, vexationist to, the, uh, to, to people's nervous systems. Uh, what is the best the way that we can prepare ourselves? All right, go and ahead. What would be the effects yeah. of such? Excellent question. It's, it's it's something that plagues me on a daily basis. Um, how to prepare? Um, I, I guess the best way to to be prepared is to become involved in your own personal research. There is so much out there. That you first of all, you have to be careful about what what is out there. That's that's a very you know serious conundrum. But if you do some really really good research with the good researchers that are involved in all of this, and this has been going on now, uh, you know for you know for seventy years, there's so much information out there that people can um, you know lean on to become more acquainted with the different perspectives of what's really going on. And the only way that I can describe it is do your own research. Uh, don't depend on Facebook to, you know, be your uh, be all and end all of your understanding of the extraterrestrial issue. You've really got to dig down deep and and look at people like um, Jacques Vallée, for example, uh, John Mack. Uh, there, are, there are a number of other people involved in all of this research. If you dig down deep and people, you know, they don't always dig as deep as they can to find out what's going on. So you have to prepare yourself with good information. And there's so much politically happening right now. You know, the, 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 the Pentagon issue, uh, the, the issue with the United States Senate going more deeply into all of this. You have to dig down deep and find out what's really going on in order to prepare yourself for what's really going to happen. And there is going to be some form of ultimate disclosure going on here. There's absolutely no doubt about it. So you have to do the work of um, investigating good people like uh, Richard Dolan, for example. Read his his uh, both tomes on the UFOs and national security state. 
get an understanding of, of that to begin with. So in order to prepare yourself, you've got to do your own research. You just can't depend on uh, on speculation on Facebook or Instagram or, 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 or tweet uh, Twitter to, to, to get a full understanding of what the UFO issue is all about. You have to do your own research. So that that's my suggestion to how to prepare people with, for what's really going on. All right, John, thank you for that. Now, you mentioned Jacques Vallée, and, and one of his book books, and I can't remember the title, but it, the subtitle had the word deception in it, suggesting to me, and I'm, I didn't read that book, but it, you tell me, was Vallée not hinting that uh, that perhaps extraterrestrials uh, are not... Uh, are not, you know, these knights in shining armor that are here to, mm-hmm. to rescue us from ourselves. There is an element of deception there, which also echoes, uh, and now I've just lost the, the thread, his name, the, uh, the, the, um, the, the gentleman, the doctor from, uh, the Philadelphia area who, uh, I, along with, I think Bud Hopkins, they, they brought that roper pole in about extra, uh, alien mm-hmm. abductions. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And I can't think of his name. Um, uh, do you know who I'm talking about? He's done some. Uh, uh, yeah. He's done some I, hypnosis uh, regressions and so forth, and and he right, believes I, he believes that uh, that David Jacobs, David Jacobs, Doctor David Jacobs, right, he yeah. believes also that there is yeah. there is a nefarious mm-hmm. element uh, to these extraterrestrials. I have no doubt, Richard, that um, what we believe uh, about the whole ET issue is not the full story. And people who come forward about the benevolence of these ET races have their perspective. And and um, I, I lean towards that perspective for, for one reason and one reason only is because of the work that I did with John Mack and, and with, with respect to the contactees that he interviewed. But set that aside for a second. Uh, the the idea that the extraterrestrials all are all of these benevolent beings is is is, is not a lock. There's absolutely no way that all of the extraterrestrials that are out there, all of the races that are out there, are benevolent or sort of conducive to the, you know, extension of, uh, you know, human involvement. There's no way that that can be true. There are beings out there that may be um, non-benevolent. I have no doubt about that. But the fact of the matter is that they're out there and that we have to deal with it. And that's that's the crooks of, of, of where I come from. There, there's a whole machination of how we understand the ET issue. And to go one way or another, we're deluding ourselves into um, a, a paradigm of, of understanding that everything's going to be rosy. And I agree with you. It just may not be. But the fact of the matter is, once the human family understands that, A, we're not alone in the cosmos, and B, that these beings are here, and C... What the heck are we going to do about it as a human family and and how we deal with that? So that opens up the door to the possibility of these beings being benevolent or non-benevolent. We just don't know. And if anyone suggests that it's one way or another, and that's the only answer to the question, I think we're deluding ourselves. All right. Let's say hi to Jim in Toledo. Jim, welcome. Good morning. Good morning. I'm 79 years old, and I've heard about... The Creature from Jekyll Island and G. Edgar Griffin's book right. about the Federal Reserve probably 40, 50 years ago. Yes. 
You guys uh, contacted Mr. Griffin, or you're friendly with him? Oh, I've had him. I've interviewed him many times over the years. It's been a while mm-hmm. since I've had him on, but I've interviewed him on my radio program and my TV show. Yes, pretty much the right. same line of reasoning, the way I see it. Well, he hasn't changed his position, if that's what you mean. Um, if yeah, I mean he's he's talking about the you know the power of the Federal Reserve. This is the creature from Jekyll Island. It was formed uh, on this island, and and. Um, Rammed, rammed, 1913, and it was rammed through the uh, Congress with uh, during a Christmas break when there weren't, uh, you know, too many pe- people were anxious to get home. Let's put it that way. They didn't. And the three major families that did it were Rothschilds, the J.P. Morgan, and mm-hmm. the Rockefellers. Yes. Well, that's the that's the big. Um, These are the people the, running the world. Well, it's yeah, it's not federal, it's not a reserve, and it's not a bank. Really, it's just a license to print money for somebody. It's like a ball of money merchants. Well, you know, I spoke to Michael Tellinger recently. I would say within the last two months, uh, he was on my podcast, and um, Tellinger actually believes that uh, Trump has essentially taken over the Fed. Uh, within the auspices of the the U.S. Treasury, and I've had I've I had a number of people um, tell me the same thing, and I don't know you know exactly where they're getting their information, but this is what they believe. So, and I and if they were to God that uh, Donald Trump wears a uh, a Kevlar vest, <laughs> Ke- Kevlar vest, Kevlar Kevlar headpiece, Kevlar leggings. Well, and, and Tellinger says that that would be the tipping point. If you were to bring down the Federal Reserve in the United States, uh, then the, it would collapse like a house of cards across the world. One by one, all of the central banks would, would basically collapse. And um, We're back to John Kennedy and Abraham Lincoln. There you go. All right. Thank you for uh, checking in with uh, or Jim from Toledo. Do we still have Andy on the line, Carlos? Do we still have Andy? Okay, let's say hi to Andy. Are you there, Andy? Well, I'm 88 years old, and I have two quick uh, suggestions. One is about aliens, and the other is about the banks. Why can't we have a a National Museum in Ottawa with the 37 or whatever full-size aliens, mannequins there, so people could go and look at them and see them with a card with their history there? Why can't we have it? Because we, people are not aware who who these are. Let's have full-size mannequins at a national museum somewhere. On the other hand, about banks, this is my message that I want to get on uh, on my uh, local station on Friday, 570 Kitchener, and I want to say to the students, uh, university students, particularly in Ottawa and the cities, look, have three placards and go and protest the uh, leaders of the politician parties and say this. Three placards. Number one says, share Canada's wealth. Placard number two that you're protesting with is, banks earn $5 billion. And the third placard is, uh, guaranteed minimum, uh, guaranteed minimum wage right now. N-O-W now for Canadians 18 and over. And the reason I say this, sir, is I was at a university years ago. I went by a restaurant and smelled the food. I didn't have a damn penny. I had to go home on the weekend to get food. And I'm saying, why can't Canadians get a guaranteed minimum wage? Well, we, there, we do have a guaranteed minimum wage, system, sir. Okay, Andy. Colleagues- 
Andy, 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 slow down now. I, you're all exercised, and that's good. I, I love the passion, but we do have a minimum wage. If you're talking about a guaranteed universal income, well, that idea is being floated, and I don't think it's a good one um, for a, lo- a whole lot of reasons of which we don't have time to get into uh, here. Um, now, in terms of uh, student debt, I mean, there's no there's no free lunch, right? If 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 we bail out students or you know some have even have suggested free post secondary education there's no free there's no such thing as free all right it comes from uh the taxpayers it comes out of our pocket so um we have to be also we have to remember here in canada the post secondary education is already heavily subsidized you're paying a tenth of what they do in the united states for post-secondary. So we also have to rethink, you know, who are we graduating? Are they, are they graduating and prepared for the new economy? I, I spent uh, a, uh, a couple hours speaking with Dennis Combites a couple weeks ago about robotics, the revolution, that it's here. We're talking about a massive, massive displacement in the workforce in North America. I believe he said 40%. That 60 million people who have jobs today will not have them within 10 years. Now, there will be some new jobs from robotics, uh, but the people that are graduating from university to do and, and high school, they're being trained to do jobs that will not exist within the decade. So we have to be more mindful about, you know, what we're studying here as students. And uh, having a... A PhD in philosophy is great, but, you know, is that really worth putting yourself $100,000 in debt? I don't know if that's uh, the way to go in 2020. Uh, let's see. Well, why, don't we, uh, why don't we take a timeout? And uh, are you good to hang around for a little longer, Victor? I'm still with you, and I have some educational perspectives on exactly what you just. I'm I'm guessing you would as a former former principal. All right, we'll uh, exactly. I will get your take on that when we come back. Four one six three six zero zero seven forty. Four one six three six zero zero seven forty. And Carlos, my screener isn't working, so just keep just keep buzzing my ear, telling me uh, who's calling and where they're calling from. I always like to hear where they're calling from as well. And uh, toll free from out of town. One eight six six seven forty four. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740. Or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Just a quick programming note. I will be hosting uh, Coast to Coast AM on Saturday, October the 3rd, and then again on Friday, October the 16th, and then there's a couple more dates in October. Uh, I can't remember, but I've got them written down somewhere, I promise you. And uh, if you want to just, uh, you know, 
keep track of my comings and goings and when I'll be on coast and so forth, just go to my website, strangeplanet.ca. There's an events and appearances page. Just click on that. That'll tell you when I'm uh, I'm doing coast and some of the other radio programs I do, like Humble and Fred, my good pals uh, on uh, another radio station. Uh, I usually do the, the first Wednesday of every month. All right. So we were talking to uh, Andy earlier, uh, Victor, and he was... Um, bemoaning the fact, and, and I think we're all sympathetic to a certain degree with students who are saddled with these huge debts. Um, and I think he was talking about universal, um, income. I'm not sure because we do have a, we do have a minimum wage, um, which I'm not, I'm also not a huge fan of. However, you wanted to weigh in as a, uh, as a former educator. Well, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really difficult, uh, balance to, to try to achieve. Uh, in in a, in a world where there is, um, uh, you know, let's, let's, let's take Canada for example. I mean, we we live in a very fortunate country, and where we have a provincial system in in all the provinces where education is is was at one time um, the, the 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 premier sort of uh, cherry on the cake uh, globally. I mean, uh, Ontario had at the one time literally the best education system. In in, uh, in the globe, and it was really a, um, a you know a monument to how uh, the provincial government at the time under Bill Davis brought forward some educational reforms that completely revolutionized you know um, elementary school education, post second secondary school education, and post secondary. But that doesn't come with a free ticket. And uh, to, to, to assume for at, at, at any point in time that you can go through elementary school, secondary school, and post-secondary uh, on a free ticket is absurd. Uh, we all have to pay our own fair share. And wh- when you do invite people to become involved in an educational system that's, that's going to provide you with you know, uh, a Bachelor of Arts degree or a PhD or whatever it happens to be, you have to be, uh, you know, well-informed about the kind of risks you're taking in order to burden the general public with that debt. And to me, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a very kind of uh, thin line that you have to tread. So you can't have the whole thing. And, but what I don't understand somehow is that, you know, students who come out of a university with a $50,000 debt, how does that happen? Something has to happen to, to, to readjust that kind of inequity. Right. Well, I'll t- again, I have some ideas about that. And, and sure. I, I mean, I think for the most part, and it's been a while since I was in uh, post-secondary, um, I, and um, it, it was re- reasonably affordable back in the 80s, and I don't know, mm-hmm. I think, by and large, compared to other jurisdictions, it still is. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, in the United States, I mean, you could, if you, you can spend $50,000 a year for tuition and, mm-hmm. and books and so forth. Uh, and right. when I look at, and, and, and I look at the, the money uh, and the resources tied up in, in post-secondary institutions, in administration, in in uh, buildings, uh, brick and mortar, um, we ha- that that model doesn't work anymore. No, you're right. It's so top heavy now. With there's you know as many administrators or more than there are there are for faculty, uh, and and these and in the United States, a lot of these universities are just swimming in cash because of uh, alumnus that donate. They have 
some of them have billions of dollars at their dispo- disposal, and they're building mm-hmm. you know huge sports facilities and so forth, which is fine. But um, I think it's beholden upon them to get you know their their uh, their financial structure in line so that it that it's more affordable uh, for people. But the the idea that now of it's like libraries, we're not building. Mm-hmm libraries anymore because everything is online and 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 it's we're going to move that way with post-secondary education as well and we're getting a taste of it now with covid and kids going uh, online courses right. this is the future like it or not it's here right yeah i think i think the point that you're making is what kind of student do we want to put through a system of education that's going to eventually benefit society i mean you have an educational system in place for only one reason, as far as I'm concerned, is to benefit the general society that you are um, uh, existing in. It advances the society in order to provide insights uh, you know, in, in, in scientific, philosophical, political, all of, the, all of the disciplines that are there. All of these things are in place to improve society. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but an educational system, it, it means to lead. That's what educate right. means. Well, to it's a certain to point, it's also, you know, yes, we, we, want, we want to graduate good citizens, um, but you're also creating, you're creating an economic unit who's, who's going to be a, a wage earner right. in, a, in a family. And that is the, that's mm-hmm. the underpinning of our society and our economy, that the family unit. And if you have someone uh, who graduates and let's say that they're not, taking uh they're not going to university they're graduating with a trade so they're a plumber or they're an electrician or what have you that person becomes you know a solid wage earner uh that can support a family uh they become you know their consumers uh, you know and yes you want them to be a, that person a man or a woman to be a good citizen and so forth uh but you're creating independent family units economic units and uh, that pro- yeah. yeah that propel the society yeah exactly yes, yes. yeah yeah i i um so i i don't know what the answer is to some of these this is a huge student debt bubble in the united states uh that's that's going to have potentially catastrophic consequences on on you know i i don't know what the answer is there um but i know we're headed down the wrong road in terms of you know how we are presenting uh, post-secondary education to students, um, it's just so top-heavy, again, with administration and, and brick-and-mortar and so forth. It's also unnecessary. There's no need for an education to cost what it does in, in, many, in many ways. Uh, I, I often yeah. wonder to myself, exactly, Richard, I often wonder where these costs are. I, it, I, you know, having been part of a, uh, you know, a, a, a Toronto Catholic District School Board, and you look at the kinds of costs that they are involved in, you, t- you talk about bricks and mortar and land development and where do you buy schools and all of that. There's so much um, built into the infrastructure of developing an educational system uh, that's not part of children in the classroom. It, it's a, sort of like a backdrop to, to what's going on with kids in, in a classroom that the public under, 
really doesn't understand what it really takes to put a public education system in place that uh, validates families, that gets kids involved, that, that propels them on to uh, beyond, you know, secondary or post-secondary education into the, you know, uh, degree programs, right. PhDs, etc. So wh- 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 how do you propel those kinds of systems in place without investing dollars and uh, wh- wh- where do the dollars come from? I guess that's my question. Right, right. Um, well, I think I think we know where we're headed in the future, and and I think university uh, and college will be uh, very affordable, and it, in some cases free, and it'll be available online to the world. Uh, so if you if you're in uh, Kenya and you have a you have access to a tablet or a phone, uh, you can go to school. You can go to the finest. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ivy League college uh, or university in the world, and uh, that's where it's headed. Uh, I, th- I think that that future is is bright. I think we're we're going to get rid of uh, the delivery system that we have now, just because it's just it's it's no longer workable. It, it, it's archaic, and and what we're going through right now with this so-called pandemic is that we're gradually realizing that. Uh, I have very close friends, Richard, as, as you probably do too, who are now working from home for a variety of reasons, and they are actually becoming more productive at home than they were in the office. That they went and took the subway down to University Avenue and went to into their office on King Street. They're more productive now at home than they've ever been. Right. The, the, the fact of the matter is, they're taking less sick days. They, they, it was, it was, there's some stats out there that uh, initially, you know, people took uh, three or 0.5 or port, you know, 4.0 uh, sick days uh, per month. Now it's down to 2.2 sick days. Right. Well, as someone because who's worked people, from home for a very long time, I, I, and, right. and my lovely bride as well, I can, yeah, you, mm-hmm. you, you work longer, you work through your lunch because you're working at your dining room table. So you're eating and you're right. working and you're, and you're taking texts mm-hmm. and emails at bedtime. You, you, you definitely work further. And, and for people now who are also working in the home, this is a big change. Now they see the possibility and, and, and how workable it is, maybe even to homeschool. Uh, do, do, do you think? Yeah. Do you think that this kind of, of revolution of uh, how, how you work from home is really going to change things, or will when things settle down, is it going to just revert to the other model? What, what do you think about that? No, I don't think I don't think we're going back entirely. Uh, uh, some things I don't want to leave behind, and we may have to. But one of the things I think one of the silver linings is uh, is we're going to get back to, you know, the importance of, of family structure and family life. Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. Um, if um, you're going to be working from home, you're, you're going to be uh, spending more time with your children. I've seen some recent uh, studies uh, in the United States. Uh, they haven't done polling up here, up, up here like this, but something like 60% now of parents in the U.S., many of the minorities, are saying they are now seriously considering spending uh, uh, a few years anyway homeschooling your children. We've got to take a quick time out. We'll come back into some more calls. Victor Vigiani stays with us. This is The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. (laughs) 
The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. And if you enjoy The Conspiracy Show, check out my podcast, Conspiracy Unlimited. New episodes drop every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. You can listen and subscribe at Conspiracy Unlimited Podcast. Dot com conspiracy unlimited podcast dot com or wherever you find your uh, find your your podcasts it's uh, it's everywhere and uh, let's uh, go right to the phones and Paul is in Jersey City this morning Paul welcome well uh, bienvenue and uh, bonjour <laughs> <laughs> Richard you are one of my favorite hosts when you uh, substitute in the how do you call it the air chair the air chair. Coast. Yes. Well, thank you. That's very kind of you. You're, you're quite welcome. And uh, wonderful discussion this evening. I want to touch on economics and UFOs, and they actually go together. And let me, uh, well, let me elaborate as fast as I can for everybody. Uh, first, uh, I will ask a question. What passport in the world is the most potent passport you could have of any nation? Just take a guess. The most potent? What do you mean by potent? Well, it's a passport where you don't need a visa to go anywhere, where you go through, where you do not go through air, any airport. Oh, or a diplomatic passport. Uh, steamship security. A, a diplomatic passport. A diplomatic passport. Uh, no, not even that. Well, it is a diplomatic passport of a sort. A United Nations passport. Uh, no. No? But you, touch, uh, you and Paul Hellyer touched on it. The Bank of International Settlements. They have their own passport. They certainly do. Yeah, oh, yes. It's called BIS. That's correct. Absolutely correct. And you can go anywhere in the world for any reason, at any time, with no search, nothing. You just go through. And that's it. I was not aware of that. I mean, I know about the Bank of International Settlements. It's kind of the central bank of central banks. But I had no idea. But I have, having hear, heard that, I can't say that I'm surprised. So they pretty well have carte blanche. That's right. If you have that passport, they will not question you. You will, not be at, you will, you will simply be told to take your seat or your right. Front of the line. cabin, and that's it. All right. Now, so you wanted but, to connect but what that. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, it just means that uh, if you talk about money and power, that's power right there. I mean, you can go where you want, when you want, and there are no visa restrictions, no uh, no restrictions of any kind. All right. Well, that tells us a lot. So you wanted to connect economics with UFOs. All right. Yes. Now, if you uh, – there are uh, – when, when – uh, Paul Hellyer, uh, by the way, I read his book on uh, the Money Mafia, and I'm looking forward to the, his new book. Uh, in, when, it came, when it comes to huge debt and, uh, and things like pandemics, the ancients really had the answer to it. And this is going back to the kings of the Bible, like uh, Manassas, who was not a good one, Hezekiah, who was a good one, um, the non, uh, uh, non-Israelite kings like Nebuchadnezzar and uh, uh, Pharaoh Necho and the Pharaoh Ramses, in situations like this, they put all debts at an end. 
until things return to normal. That was it. They just declared an end. Uh, how you could do it today, well, that yeah, remains to be seen, but it would have to be done because in a situation that we have now, can you imagine what happens if people uh, who face possible evictions are suddenly put on the street? Do you know what, what that does to the spread of disease? Oh, it's true. It's true. Yeah, for See? sure. And so the, the well, there, and and not only that. I mean, yes, the, the the tenant that's put on the street, but also you have you have the whole commercial real estate uh, business would collapse. Uh, yes, that yes, that is true. But uh, again, uh, the the ancients really had the answer to it. They they call those jubilee years uh, in the Bible as well. They every was it every seventy years was a jubilee year. Uh, uh, let me see. Uh, yes. So he would wipe out all debt. A jubilee year where all debts were at an end, slavery was at an end, everything. It's hard to to do that, though, with a Federal Reserve. I don't think they're going to go along with that. No, I don't think they would. The greed is too strong. Uh, And then the other thing is with UFOs. I don't think to the ancients UFOs were all that strange because if you read everything about the gods, and this is including in the Bible, if you read uh, the Bible, the the uh, Quran, the Bhagavad Gita, all of them, uh, Roman uh, Roman and Greek uh, pantheons, to them the gods came from the heavens. Now the concept of heaven was uh, somewhat different from what you and I today know, because today we know that the uh, earth is round. We we look to the skies, the heavens, but if you read, uh, I think it's Second Corinthians chapter 12, uh, the Apostle Paul writes about being uh, transported to third heaven. Uh, right. just, I'll paraphrase, he, said, he says that he knew a man who 14 years before uh, was brought to third heaven. He knew not whether in body or spirit. Paul, I got to jump in here because I'm up against the uh, the clock here. We're going to take I'm, a time up. You hold on. You hold on, and we'll get back to your call in a moment. Victor Vigiani stays with us as well. Open lines on the conspiracy show. Keeping an eye on the new world order. This is the conspiracy show with Richard Serrett. From Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard, call 416 360 0740 or toll free 1 866 740 4740. Paul is in Jersey City. Paul, you were talking about UFOs in the Bible. Uh, just finish up with that point and we'll get Victor to, to respond. All right. Well, uh, again, uh, as I said, uh, the Apostle Paul wrote about uh, third heaven, being transported to third heaven. I'm sure he was referring to himself in that passage in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Now, the, the ancients had uh, this concept of it, uh, that first heaven was the earth itself. It existed within uh, like an ether, which would be first heaven. Second heaven would be the firmament or the sky where the birds and the clouds would, uh, would, they would see, and the stars at night. And then third heaven was the area where the god or gods lived. That was beyond the reach and uh, beyond the visibility of the people uh, in the first heaven area, which was the earth. So it was a... Uh, uh, 
uh, a spiritual, transcendental type of thing, but they regarded the gods as coming from the third heaven. So it was not so strange to them. Uh, Ezekiel writes of seeing wheels within wheels. Uh, if you go to the, uh, well, I'm, I'm most familiar with Roman mythology because it's Latin. Uh, and the Romans regarded the gods as coming uh, from chariots in the sky. And when you think about it, how would they view a, uh, a, uh, a vehicle coming from, uh, coming from the second heaven, the firmament, the sky? They would look at it as similar to what they had here, a chariot. So uh, in that sense, uh, it was not strange to them at all. No, I would agree. I would agree. Yeah. And uh, one more thing about education. I don't want to take too much time, but I will say this. When it comes to online learning, yes, it is good. But remember, if you, want, if you study chemistry, if you study medicine, if you study biology, um, even uh, electronics and physics, you need work in the laboratory. And that takes physical, uh, a physical classroom or physical laboratory in which to work. That's true, uh, but they're getting there. Uh, my 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 children are taking some online. Uh, it's a, an Earth Sciences, or it's a, I think it's called Earth Sciences. It's kind of a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and and That's you'd be amazed at what they can do now online with, uh, with even uh, even um, biology in terms of. Uh, oh yes, yeah. My, uh, my grandchildren is animations well, I, I and so forth. But you're right; it's not the same <laughs> as different parts of the world. It's, yeah, we're not there yet, but it's getting there. It's getting there. Yeah. And by the way, I, we have a son who has six children, and they are all being homeschooled. It started with the eldest one, who's 14, and it will continue with the youngest, who is one month. <laughs> well, I tell you, if, if not everyone is in a position to do it, but if you are, I think you should seriously consider it, because you will never, ever regret, if nothing else, you'll never, ever regret that extra time that you spend with your, your children. You, it's just, you, it's... Money can't buy that. You know, an extra, I had an extra four years where every single day they were with us. And uh, that's just so important on so many levels. Again, not everyone is in a position, but now more are. For sure. Yeah. More are. Thank you, uh, Paul, from Jersey City. Great hearing from you. And great, great yeah. speaking with you, Rashad. The, the Paul brings to the point very, some very poignant questions. Uh, the only caveat that I would... Uh, as as a teacher now, this is totally different than than is the social interaction in a classroom of twenty five or thirty students on a day to day basis uh, over one hundred and eighty five days. You're in that classroom with twenty five or thirty students, and you meet them every single day. You the bell rings at nine o'clock, and you bring them into the classroom, and you sit down, you get your books out, and you just begin. Um, I just wonder how that's going to be replicated by any kind of online learning. And I know it's very specific. Online learning can be very, very focused and specific. But I just don't understand how we can replicate or bring into play that sort of recess bell in the morning where the, the, the bell rings and you come into the classroom and you're just in there with your backpacks and your lunch and everything 
and kids are interacting with a teacher who has something to offer. Well, uh, well, I there are there is synchronous, there is asynchronous, which is you know it's a little bit like correspondence courses. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, then there is synchronous, which is you have a, a teacher, it's it's live, it is interactive. You have other students. Yes, I, I get it. It's not you're not breathing the same air. It's it's you're, you're right. not yeah. the, the, yeah. the socializing isn't there, which is one of the reasons we let our our. Uh, our boys go this year. They just, they wanted mm-hmm. what they call mm-hmm. a real high school experience. So they're going to an all boys right. Catholic school. Uh, wow. Mind you, it's only mm-hmm. it's only two days a week, and it's a half a day. But they just crave wanting to be away from the house in another building with other kids. And I couldn't deny yeah. that. But yeah. it doesn't have to be their entire scholastic career. It could be just no, you're right. three it, or it, four it's years. Not, it's not, it's not, yeah, it's not one thing or another. You're right. There's a balance there someplace. Right. And the other thing is, to, the other thing is where you can get the socialization is with co-ops. So a bunch of parents get together and they rent out a church basement. And we did this too. And you hire some teachers. And now mm-hmm. they're, uh, and these are, you know, teachers uh, whose values align with your values and they're teaching courses in a certain way and Mm -hmm. um, this is almost it goes back to the the pioneering days when when parents would form councils and hire the teacher and she would teach all all eight all eight classes in a one one room schoolhouse Um, it's kind of back to the future but so co-ops are are something else that people are discovering that work as well and and uh, it gives the parents so much more control and uh, and it also allows the children to socialize but it is kind of a a homeschool type atmosphere I want to grab a quick call here sorry um, quick quick point Victor and then I'll get to a call yes go ahead no just uh, my, my my point there is that we are going through a revolution of education, and I think I really feel that we don't, we cannot dismiss all the possibilities that are open to us. And I think that everybody who's involved with with the concerns with their with their children, and socialization, and and the academics and everything, we, we we need to let this play out in order for us to understand what's really open to us now uh, and available to us all to our children with respect to what we've gone through with the past, what, six to eight months. Right. Well, now, we, because now we have options, and, and yeah, having choice exactly. is always a good thing. Uh, and and um, that's what I'm excited about, is the the choice now uh, mm-hmm. for parents. We've I think we've come to the, the end of the road for our homeschooling because our boys are now into high school. Um, but... Um, Again, for those who are are thinking about it, and now if you're in a position because you're 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 at home and you're working, now is a great time. If you're thinking about it, now is a great time to try it. Uh, and it's and and it it does seem maybe intimidating, but you know what? It, I, what I discovered is it's not the teaching. It's not you know figuring relearning grade eight math, which I had to do in pre-algebra. Mm-hmm. It's dealing. It's dealing. It's dealing with your children's behaviors, <laughs> and that yeah, gives you a whole right. new respect you're, for teachers right. as well. Yeah. Um, and, mm-hmm. and we've come to the end of the road of this uh, program. Just about. I don't. We're not going to have time for another call. But uh, uh, Victor, speaking of COVID, I mean, you're uh, typically this time of year. You're out. You're doing. Uh, you're doing um, uh, UFO conventions and conferences and so forth. You must miss it. Yeah, I do, Richard. It's a uh, it's a serious void in my existence. I've I've talked to a number of uh, the researchers that I've been involved with over the past twenty five or thirty years, and they're all suffering, Richard, with respect to 
the access to information that we all kind of had become accustomed to in the flow of information with respect to the UFO reality. And I, I, I get a sense that people are actually vanquished. They're, 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 they're at a point where it's, a, oh, I, it's almost like some people have given up. I, I, I don't want to quote any names, I won't, and I won't say that, but they're extremely frustrated by the wall of, um, of, 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 of uncertainty that's out there. And I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about that. I'm very, very concerned about it with respect to how the, the ET issue is going to evolve in, in, in the coming six to eight months. I don't know where it's going to go. I, there are certain open opportunities that I think are, are there with respect to what the political uh, implications are. But I sense a frustration with people that this just might not happen in the way that we want it to with respect to, to disclosure and and all this happening in the political and uh, and the medical COVID kind of context that we're, that, that we're that we're existing in. It's a it's a very problematic uh, feature to me, uh, and I'm very concerned. I'm very very concerned. Well, there, yes, there. Well, there is despair and despondency, um, you know, everywhere. Uh, and and there are people that are giving up, and and they mustn't, and they can't, and and uh, mm-hmm. they shouldn't. Uh, you know, this too will pass. Uh, but th- that's one of the tragic elements of of this. And I've said this before. Unfortunately, I believe we've come to a position now where the cure has been worse than the disease. Uh, Victor, always a pleasure, and we'll uh, talk again down the road very soon. I'm sure. For sure. It's been a pleasure, Richard. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Zealand News Network, Zealand Communications. All right. Uh, my thanks to uh, Brian White for the live stream and Carlos Cagina for technical production. Back next week with a brand new program. Not sure what it is yet, but it'll be good. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark speak in the light. What I say in a whisper proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.